Well, I think O Come, Come, Emmanuel is one of the most clearest Advent songs that someone can sing. It points to exactly what you just heard read, and that is that there is something magnificent in the incarnation, something worth singing about, something worth praising God for. This morning, I want to tell you, Merry Christmas. I mean it. Uh, Weeks away from Christmas Day, we remember that Christ came to the earth. Uh, Today, we remember that this baby, a son of man like us, was the son of God sent to save us. For preaching this morning, our sermon text is going to focus on verses 39 through 56, focusing on the spirit-filled life of Mary and Elizabeth. But we wanted to back up and read and Quickly, I'll summarize verses 26 through 38 to understand the context and to see the beauty of our God. You know, God in Luke 1 and 2 has uh, put side by side an example of Gabriel coming to Zechariah and his unbelief. And then God has put the angel Gabriel coming to visit Mary and her faith, her belief. And that is intentional. This angel Gabriel, remember, has already visited Zechariah and Elizabeth. He promised them a child, John the Baptist. Elizabeth conceived. She's six months pregnant. She's just starting to tell people. And the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Her profile is a young woman, a virgin, living in Nazareth. This is a small town in Galilee, a know-nothing town, if you will. People could say things like, what good comes from Nazareth? Right? It's like Zavala. It's like, what's a, what comes from Zavala? It's that kind of thing. It's like, it's just distant, seemingly inconsi- insignificant. We learn she's a relative of Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist. Mary's pledged to be married to a carpenter named Joseph, an upright man. But this news terrifies him. Other gospel accounts say that he sought to divorce her quietly even at one point, but he didn't. The angel brings good news that Mary's going to conceive. And as you just heard read, she has to name him Jesus because he's the son of the most high. I mean, in a successive order, this angel Gabriel makes it clear to a waiting Israelite virgin that this baby she'll have will be the son of the most high. He's going to be given the throne of David, a throne that will last forever. He will reign over Jacob's house, hearkening back to the reality that Abraham's promise is fulfilled. He's going to have a kingdom that will never end. God intended that in the garden. The Israelites would have believed, and now God is going to see his intentions out. There will be a kingdom God will reign with man, and it'll be forever. Contrast that with Elizabeth. In this way, Mary's young. She's a virgin. She should be able to have children, we assume. It's the opposite problem that Elizabeth had being old and barren. But how is she going to get pregnant? I mean, summarizing this, you know, this is similar to Elizabeth that she points to a problem. Zechariah had pointed to the problem, but he pointed to it out of doubt. And disobedience to trusting God's promises. Mary? Mary is only engaged. To be pregnant without being married would be uh, possibly to consider the death sentence of adultery. That's what would be in view in the public's eye. Mary getting this news, even in the moment, processes it immediately. And yet we see she humbly accepts in the moment that it is God's will that this be the case. And she simply asks the question, how? How can this be? The angel answers her, gives her great clarity, informs her also that if this seems miraculous, know this, your cousin or your distant relative Elizabeth, she also is conceived, uh, she has conceived a baby miraculously. Why? 
Here's the main summary of 20, uh, of this whole beginning, 26 through 38. Nothing will be impossible with God. You can bank on it. Mary's concluding words stand in direct opposition to Zechariah's doubt. That's intentional. Um, you know, Zechariah needed to be silenced by the angel. Uh, we'll see that Mary, as soon as she is ready to process with someone, is not only loose-tongued, but able to sing about it. That's where we're headed. Mary shows herself to be humble, to be submissive to God's great plan of redemption. And that's the plan. God will redeem the perfect Son of God, who we celebrate in Advent, Emmanuel, God with us. O come, O come, God be with us. And ransom, captive Israel, the Prince of Peace, God Almighty in the flesh. He's come. And he's come, John says, as he grows up to take away the sins of the world. Our focus this morning is to learn from the rest of the passage then what it means to receive such good news as this. Uh, To receive good news of Christmas is to be filled with the same spirit that Uh, we see possesses these women in the text today. The Spirit of God. I mean, you heard it read. In our passage today, Mary and Elizabeth are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are models to us, the church, of what it means to receive the good news of Advent, the good news of the gospel, and not only to receive it, but to walk in it. We can learn from them today. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Uh, Three points that we see looking at Mary and Elizabeth about spirit-filled people. Here's what they do. Spirit-filled people, they seek biblical community, point one. Secondly, we'll see that spirit-filled people, they recognize Jesus as Lord, point two. And then finally, spirit-filled people trust God's word and they praise God. That's what we're gonna see in verses 39 through 56. Let's look at the first point together. Spirit-filled people are a people who seek biblical community. They seek it. Look again at the very beginning of 39 and 40. It was in those days that she did what? Mary had received this news. She rose and went with haste. In other words, she quickly went into the hill country, down to Judah. She entered her relative's house. Note the first two verses here. This is our first point, just these two verses. I think they're very important. Mary takes off on an incredible walking journey after hearing this news to seek out Elizabeth, her relative, concerning what had is been told is going to happen to her and what now she's been told has happened to Elizabeth. Mary travels an impressive 100 plus miles. And she does so just to have community in her life concerning her circumstances. This would have been about a three-day journey for her if she's going casually like they would have. And she's going just to speak with a fellow Christian, or if you will, a fellow believer, someone she can trust. Luke does not disclose the exact location that she's headed to, but we know it's just outside of Jerusalem in in Judah there. But notice this, there is zero delay in Mary after receiving her own announcement from the angel. There's no delay. She immediately wants to go and she wants to greet someone, a relative, that she can see and that she can share with in the excitement of these beautiful days. I love this. There's something to be said about the community that these boys, John the Baptist and Jesus, are going to grow up in. There's something to learn here. Clearly, both sets of parents, John's parents uh, and Jesus' parents, they're, they're pious, obedient followers of Yahweh. They are. They stand out. 
We know that Zechariah and Elizabeth have already been described as blameless in 1.6. They walk uprightly before God. They were people who loved God. Clearly, Mary is this meek and understanding of the Lord's will type lady. She wants God's will to be the center of her life. In other words, what Luke is described here is, you know, at the advent, at the incarnation of Christ, there was already this understanding of salvation and what it can do for a people. There was this fulfillment that was going to be taking place. But for something to be fulfilled, groundwork has to be laid. And what was laid here was an understanding of community. These people walked close with one another. We don't preach church attendance today as a church, Redemption Baptist Church. We don't. What we preach is the promises of God. We preach Christ and Him crucified, as Paul would say it so clearly. Mary shows us why that is what we must do. Not just harp on being together, but actually preach Christ because what happens is, is God's promises bring us together. And Spirit-filled people understand that, and so they seek biblical community. If you love Jesus, you'll love his church. You'll be a part of it. Mary is exemplary in that. Mary is a mother who loves her child. Sure, the songs are right. But Mary knows that, as it's been revealed to her, that this baby is God, her Savior, her people's Savior, We cannot afford to understand Mary apart from the community. She is entirely dependent on the community in this text. That's the idea here. She cannot experience the joy of this alone. There's this bindingness that God is doing here. Ask yourself this morning, what distance will you go to to be a part of growing in your own community? This community, the local church. Ask yourself, what is your most recent and painful struggle in this life? The opposite of Mary. I mean, Mary has some doubts, but she gets those answered quickly. It's going to be miraculous. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The angel will, you know, tells her, and you shall conceive. So she knows that this is all for good. But on the opposite, you know, think about painful struggles in your life. What seems unbearable to you? Is it loneliness in your life? Is it fear? Is it doubt? Is it depression? Is it anger? Is it financial stress? Now ask yourself, who knows about it in the church? Who who are you willing to get up and go 100 miles to see and to share in the sorrows of your own life? Do you think this way? God's people thought this way. They had been trained in the Old Testament to think this way. They watch a priest lay his hands on a a goat and they understand it to be as if they are all laying their own hands on the goat as it is slaughtered and killed for their transgressions. They understood together that they were a people. They were a scattered and broken people, but God had said, you are my people and I'm your God and I'll make you what you're not. Mary understood this. So if there is like fear, anger, frustration, concern, anything that is not what we see her as in the scripture, if it's there, which she is human, so we should assume there's maybe some room for doubt, we see her get up, we see her go. All we have to do is text today. You realize that? I mean, we literally can pull out a phone and lean into the biblical community in a single few swipes of the thumb that we see God's people would 
would instead get up and go a hundred miles, three days to sit and have a conversation about the present reality of their circumstances and believe together that God is good. Mary is scared but trusting and that trust pushes her into the spirit. And what does the spirit do? It fills her and it tells her to seek biblical community. Go, right? She refuses to ignore God's promises but the reality is the spirit coming in, you know, alongside her, equipping her to do this, the, it makes her realize that the promises are not just for her, that she'll get better clarity concerning the promises of God if she'll work them out with people around her. That is profound. What is the gospel for the church except this truth? I'm fully known by God and all my failures, yet I'm totally accepted by him. Right? This pardon that I've received, that's the gospel according to you. But check this out. Here's what the church community understands. What is the gospel lived out for the church? It's this truth. I am fully known and fully accepted, fully pardoned by God. And then I'm commanded by him to be known in the same way by my fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. It's, it's not to say the gospel's you know, not enough. The gospel's enough for you in your isolation alone. Mary could have processed this whole thing without community for God is enough. Nothing's impossible with God. That's true. But God has necessarily chosen to limit himself in this regard. He is unlimitless. Have him. And yet you on your own will always fail and fall short, even redeemed. The old man will well up and try to pull you away from God's promises. And God says, press into the community around you. For when you do, my promises get reinvigorated, reborn in you. Mary doesn't sing in the presence of the angel. She sings in the presence of a friend, like a sister in Christ. You can't have songs of hope in your trials if your trials only remain your trials. That's what God's saying. You are not alone. Stop living as if you're alone. Mary knew that. The Spirit led her. You know, it's true. He who bore sin bore it in his body on the tree. What we do, though, is we take gospel truths and we don't realize the plural reality of them. Do you know 2 Peter 2, which is a famous passage concerning the gospel in 24 and 25? It's the famous passage that talks about by Jesus's wounds, you've been healed. You've heard that, right? That's strongly individualistic, right? It's by Jesus's wounds that I have been healed, right? But do you know that God deals in the plural there? He says, he, Jesus himself, bore, listen, our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Individual, but uh, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But wait a second, wait, sheep? Now we're picking up an analogy. What do you know about sheep? You never see one by itself. Right? If you do, it's a panicking, distressed, upset sheep looking to find the flock. He says, but you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your, get this, souls. Plural. Think about it like this. Mary has confidence to believe. God granted her faith to trust him. She accepts the news gladly and in faith, as an example of faith, she's good, right? Well, yes, in one sense. But her peace, when she really understands, it presses her into her community. And that's the idea here. Grace revealed is truly amazing. Grace shared is transformative. Grace revealed is truly amazing. Grace shared? Oh, it's transformative. It's missional. 
It becomes the place where God is willing to locate all of his yes and amen in Christ. When you confess your sin to one another and pray for one another, God says, I will heal. James 5. Right? When you band together and you say, we will go to the ends of the earth for the gospel, as we just sang, right? The gospel demands that we do this. It becomes a we. God says, yeah, I'll put my spirit in you. Alone, you'll fear and doubt. With me, all the way to the ends of the earth. I'm going with you. With you till the end of the age. That's a group. That's 11 men that went forth in the hope of community. Spirit-filled people seek biblical community. Second point, spirit-filled people recognize Jesus as Lord. Look at 41 through 45. Spirit-filled people, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, are God's children. They recognize Jesus as Lord. So Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house and greets her. It's possibly a long moment where Mary is explaining what's happened. That's what's implied here. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily that, that I mean, it could be, but we don't know. But it would be more, it would make more sense that it's, we're getting, Luke is including this to say there's a formal greeting. She really explained, here's why I'm here. Here's what's happened. But regardless, then Elizabeth becomes the case study for us this morning concerning living a spirit-filled life. Let's read it again. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, I love this so much, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is an amazing text for the sheer understanding of the Holy Spirit. You know, Luke gives us lots of information concerning the Holy Spirit, more than any other author. A great way to understand the Holy Spirit is to understand that when someone is saved, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 makes that clear, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.22. And we need to understand that if we're not going to you know, fall victim to like the silliness of the charismatic movement and understanding the Holy Spirit. God seals us with His Holy Spirit, and that, that's His work of regeneration. Uh, that cannot be taken away. God makes a down payment for which he's good. Uh, he will uh, require his spirit of us, if you will, right, uh, in, in eternal life. And it's because he put it there. Yet also we see that, that you have access to the Holy Spirit after sealment. Uh, and this idea is that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit at times beyond that regeneration. I heard it explained one time by Matt Chandler. Think of it as a father walking with his son. You know, the, the son holds his hand. The, the boy knows that he has his father's hand. And he can't, almost doesn't even need to think about it sometimes. But every once in a while, that father picks that boy up, spins him around, kisses him on the head, says, son, you're the, you're the hope of, of, of my fatherhood. I love you. I care about you. The, the son understands it more specific, more specially in that moment. This is my father. And then he goes back down and his hand's held and he keeps walking. That's kind of how the feeling of the Holy Spirit can work. And that's what's happening here with Zechariah, uh, his wife, Elizabeth. Daryl Bach makes it clear in his commentary, you know, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit when she speaks to Mary in this moment. Uh, such filling is common through this account, the infancy accounts here. Various people end up addressing, you know, God, addressing Jesus. And so her response is this welcome. But listen to this. It is a revelation of God's mind. 
Okay, she's a prophetess in this regard. The spirit for Luke is a spirit who always reveals and speaks and guides. Now, here's why I'm bringing all this up. We said spirit-filled people, they recognize Jesus as Lord. And if you look in the text, you'll see that that's where the Holy Spirit leads uh, Elizabeth to. So, you know, looking through all the circumstances and the things, what sticks out the most is that, you know, not how the Spirit reveals, you know, in this story, but rather what the Spirit is revealing in this story. See, it's revealing that in an amazing fashion, this baby, there is a baby forming in Mary's womb. And get this, it's the Lord. It's God. How'd she know? Did Mary explain it and say it perfectly so that, you know, Elizabeth had this rational and reasonable proof to consider it deeply? Well, maybe so. Maybe there was at least an explanation from Mary, as I pointed out. But you, you reduce it down just to that, and it's not, you're, you're walking steps toward getting rid of the incarnation. You shouldn't think that way. Instead, you need to see it's revealed to her through miraculous means. Listen, this baby inside of her is six months old. John the Baptist, she has been fully aware for a while now what he is like, how he moves inside of her. If you've had any kind of children, been around a pregnant woman, you understand that women know the difference between that kind of movement and that kind of movement, right? And yet Luke includes in verse 41 and in 44. Okay, in other words, he labors, pun intended, right? He labors to show us that, that there is this understanding that uh, the baby is doing something inside of, of Elizabeth that is connected to this understanding Jesus as Lord. And what I think is happening is, is John, the forerunner to Christ, he's prophesying, but he's just doing it silently with his actions. You see, God has said he's been raised up for one purpose. To do what? To proclaim the coming and the excellencies of the Lord. To prepare a people. A people who would press into the promises of God, being filled with the Spirit, they would seek biblical community the way God has said it, and in their seeking, they'll find it. And John serves as a billboard to point to that. And so the very first instance that Jesus shows up on the scene, mind you, in utero. Like, what a case for, like, life in the womb, right? I mean, you have the living Son of God in, a, in Mary present with the, 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 the forerunner of Christ, the last prophet, and he worships. He declares this silent prophecy through the belly of his mother. That's my Lord. And so Elizabeth's able to give words to what this forerunner's message is. Yeah, that's right. It is the God of salvation that we have looked for. Guys, we think often about Philippians 2, right? God did not count an equality a thing to be grasped, but Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. We rushed to the cross where that meant the ultimate humility of Philippians 2. And I appreciate that. He did take it. He was born you know, in the likeness of men and eventually humbled himself to death, death on a cross. But we should pause on that song. You know, that's a song in Philippians 2, interesting enough. We should pause in wonder and see being born in the likeness of men. God, Blake will unpack this more in the weeks to come in our, in our second, our third part about Jesus. I, I can just touch on it though. God, like creator of the cosmos, growing inside of his own creation. Like, this is humility. 
If there's anything to rush someone to the understanding of a Lord, it's one who try to grasp the incarnation and only to realize that why did he do it? For love. For the love of his people. That's my Lord, John says without saying it. That's the Lord, Elizabeth says. Blessed are you, Mary, because that is God in you. It's amazing. Spirit-filled people recognize that Jesus is Lord. Last point. Spirit-filled people, they trust God's word and they praise God. Okay, They seek biblical community. They understand Jesus as Lord. And here's what they do in that. They trust God's word and praise God. Mary believed it. Okay, She believed the message spoken of her by God. Because she believes, she therefore feels emotions. And in truth, her emotions are led. She breaks out in song, we see here. It's a song. If you look at the Magnificent, as it's been titled there in your ESV. In verses 47, 46b through 55, Mary is not just speaking in this clear, prophetic sense, but is singing. By all accounts, this is a hymn. Now, it's, major, it's majorly significant to me. And here's why. You know, why the song? Why a song at all? What's this about? Well, I want you to think Disney movie, okay? <laughs> I know it may be a leap for you, but it's not hard to understand. And it should, I hope, inspire you to understand the gravity of the magnificent, I hope. Brittany and I, in our marriage, have, lots, have watched a lot of Disney movies in the past seven years. Uh, in animated movies, you know, they, they take highlights of the film. And in, in that moment of song, they communicate the message they've been trying to tell you about even clearer. I mean, they, they want you in that moment to really press into all the facts. But to not just experience them as facts as you've seen on a screen, but to now feel them. Like, feel the action that's happening. Now, honestly, the, the sweepingest like, example of this that Disney's come up with, that they made billions off of, is the movie Frozen and the movie Frozen 2. I mean, Frozen and Frozen 2 set a precedent that Disney understands. You can watch things about their marketing. They knew they mastered this idea. We can sing, and when we sing, we'll explain a concept. And that concept will weave its way deep into the people. So... I bring that up to tell you, we're going to get into the weeds of this together this morning. There's this part in Frozen 2, okay? If you know the story, uh, great. If you don't, I'm going to tell you about it. So, you know, you've got this princess, Anna. Anna has been cast away uh, from helping her sister. Uh, her sister goes on alone to battle and to help to figure out what is calling her. Uh, she's drifted now. Anna has drifted down a river, down into a cave, down into the darkness. She comes to a realization down there that her sister is dead. She realizes that her sister is gone. Her friend, her only friend in the bottom of that cave where darkness is starting to overtake her is Olaf and he himself even disintegrates in her own hands. And then Disney does what they do, right? She sings this song called The Next Right Thing. Now, I know in the weeds of things, I want to point out, it is not out of humor or to impress the children that are here this morning. I'm not doing this, <laughs> explaining this, uh, to, to waste your time. Okay, this is not me taking pagan movies like Frozen, which it is a pagan movie, and trying to say that somehow it's the gospel. It's not. But I'm about to read you a song this Sunday morning. 
Because I want to show you how much this song could resonate with that story contextually in Frozen 2, but also how everyone in the theater that packed it out in America in 21st century believes, whether they can admit it or not, that when a song comes on that tugs at their strings and how they feel emotionally, they can't help but get sucked into it. Okay? Remember the low that I just described in that moment. There sits Anna, a dead Olaf, a sister who's dead. And she says this. She sings this. I've seen dark before, but not like this. This is cold. This is empty. This is numb. The life I knew is over. The lights are out. Hello, darkness. I'm ready to succumb. I follow you around. I always have, but you've gone to a place I cannot find. This grief has a gravity. It pulls me down. But a tiny voice whispers in my mind, you are lost, hope is gone, but you must go on and do the next right thing. Can there be a day beyond this night? I don't know anymore. What is true? I can't find my direction. I'm all alone. The only star that guided me was you. How to rise from the floor. But it's not you I'm rising for. Just do the next right thing. Take a step, step again. It is all that I can, uh, that all that I can to do the next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's much for me, it's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath, this next step, this next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light, and do the next right thing. And with it done, what comes then? When it's clear that everything will never be the same again, I'll make the choice. I'll hear that voice. And do the next right thing. Now, powerful, no doubt, right? A moving idea of a song. Get up. Up out of the darkness. Get up on it, right? Do the next right thing. Uh, be changed for the positive when life, you know, when in life's negativity smacks you in the face. This is powerful stuff. And Disney knows it. Disney knows it. So they sing it. They know this is important. And if I'm going to catechize a child in a movie theater and I'm going to do it over and over again as their parents play the soundtrack till their ears bleed, I'm going to put it in song. Now, there's an American lyricist named Yip Harburg who said this famously. He said, words make you think thoughts. Music makes you feel feelings. Songs, therefore, make you feel thoughts. Back to Mary. You're like, man, long, long side note. Here's why. Back to Mary now. With this understanding, we should go a step further as Christians, which Yip is not a Christian, Yip Harburg, who I just quoted. But we should go further than him. If songs make us feel thoughts, then as one person that I follow online said, hymns make you feel doctrine. In other words, like what you sing about matters because it should be pointing you to what you know, what you believe in. Biblical community points you to it. Spirit-filled people live in biblical community, right? Spirit-filled people that trust God in their circumstances. They, they continue in their faithfulness and they're affirmed, right? They, they trust Jesus as Lord. And in that, that's who can sing. Why? Because their doctrine inspires them. Hymns make you feel doctrine. So for us, verses 46 through 56, it covers this song that Mary sings. 
Now, here's why I bring all that up and why I hammered so hard on Frozen. We don't have time this morning to break down for you how deep Israel's history is woven into this song. There is a tapestry woven by Mary of understanding the depths of Israel's history. There, there is this incredible cultural moment surrounding this. It could be that you would read it and think, oh, this is like a nationalism type hymn to Israel. You would think wrongly. This was the air they breathed. This was much more to them than some idea of a nation state. This was at every turn of their culture. They were hoping that a a, a Messiah would come and then he came. And what can she do in this moment but sing? And in her singing, she lets us know all of these deep truths concerning Israel. I mean, our culture today loves a good hit always because it's usually reaching inside them and pointing to something that they know. They've dwelt on it. They've thought about it. Look, you may think it's hard to understand if you study it, but my challenge to you in this sermon is is to go and study the Magnificent. You want to get more out of the Incarnation. You want Advent to matter. Take some time this week. Sit down with your Bible and open up and read slowly 46 through 56. I'll give you a taste. She can sing. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Her language throughout the entire hymn is an ordered list of scriptures. She alludes to over 30 scriptures in this one song that we know of. As we trace them, even simply, a cursory understanding will show that she is singing what the Old Testament is boasting in. She was steeped in it. Ask yourself this question. If your current thoughts at this point in your life on God and His faithfulness, if they were crafted into a song, would they be filled with such Bible as Mary's? It's a convicting question. What you sing about says a lot about what you believe. In 46 through 49, she sings concerning herself. Here's the summary. God had no reason to consider me a sinner, but he did so because of his mercy. So I boast in his greatness, so much so I know that after me people will boast in my greatness. But here's the thing, it's not my greatness, it's God's. Mary actually builds into her own song an understanding from her past that she should not be worshipped as an idol in the future. She simply was a conduit for God's grace in Christ. And Christ is the administrator of that new covenant, not her. And so she even sings in it. It's rich. In 50 through 53, she changes to now an unknown people. In the sense of they're not explicitly named like she is and like Israel is at the end. Now it's all of us. You know why? Because she addresses people who are hungry. She addresses people who are poor. She addresses people who are unable to provide for themselves. The summary is simple. Here's what she sings. God is merciful. God's a deliverer. God's a provider. And he does so prospectively to people who fear him, people who humble themselves before him, and people who understand their empty lives. Said negatively in this section, she is singing that God will judge the proud. She understands that God will bring down the ones who don't fear him. She sings about judgment. She sings that God will leave empty those who think themselves to be something greater than him. And then finally, in 54 and 55, she sings about her own people, Israel. The summary is simple. God is a promise keeper. All can be children of Abraham like Mary's people because God knows. 
He promised. His promise to us is over a thousand years old. That's why she sings about Abraham in her moment here. But to our God, it is as one day, the day of salvation. She sings. Can you sing with Mary? Brother, sister, hear me. Spirit-filled people, they trust God's word and they praise God, just like she does here. Verse 56 says that Mary stayed for three months and then returned home. In 45 minutes this morning, I've tried to just whet your appetite. But do you realize that what we get in 45 minutes, she went ahead and continued in this spirit, praising God, talking with Elizabeth, spending time trusting God for three months. Three months. That's, that's, that's a lot of days, guys. It was marked with worship. It was inspiring praise. I pray that this season of remembrance for you will be the same. You only have a few weeks, or a couple weeks even, before you and your family or you and your household or you yourself will celebrate Christmas Day. Our text is clear. If you're going to enjoy Christ this Advent season, be spirit-filled. Seek biblical community. Mary walked 100 miles. You can send one text. Spirit-filled people recognize Jesus as Lord. Join Elizabeth this season. Stand in awe of a fetus. A baby. The incarnate one. He's Lord. And then finally, spirit-filled people, they trust God and they praise him. Open your mouth and sing. That's what we get to do next. We're going to sing, he will hold me fast. You know, we think about Christ as the one who rose and empowered, and we should. You know, the good thing about the Advent is, is it makes us slow down and realize that like the one who holds the world had to be held. It's just phenomenal, you know? But he does hold us. And Mary, did you know, is like a famous song. And I thought about it in my closing because, you know, there's this incredible line where, you know, it talks about how, you know, uh, she's, she's, you know, the baby who you hold is going to uphold you. You know, the whole song is built on this theme of faith. And we get that because we want to sing it. And so, you know, be, be slow to think wrongly about baby Jesus, but be quick to not rush past it. So when you think about he will hold me fast, we're about to sing right now in response. Uh, know this, even as an infant, Jesus had the shoulders to be able to uphold the whole world. He's the image of the invisible God, right? And so let's worship him. He's worthy of it. We pray with me as we do so. God, thank you. Thank you for faith, for believing even when it's hard and we can't see. I'm amazed to know, God, that even when you were unseen as you were there in the womb, Father, your people knew you. And we want to know you like that now. We don't hope for what we see, for who hopes for what he sees. God, hope depends on us not seeing right now. But it's enough. And so I pray, God, that if any of my brothers or sisters are weary, encourage them to press into biblical community. Help me to do the same, God. Father, if any of us are struggling to be spirit-filled and recognize your lordship as being good for us, God, remind us that the more you're glorified, the more satisfied we'll be in you. Father, we confess our brokenness in that. And Father, finally, God, we pray that you will lead us to be the spirit-filled people that can sing, God. Loosen our deaf ears, our bound tongues, God, help us to hear and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Father, this morning and as we go, let us hum among our children 
and let us sing among our neighbors. And God, let us shout at the, from the rooftops that Christ has come. In all this, we acknowledge our need for you, and we pray you'd meet us now. In Jesus' name, amen.